With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Sam Yagen knows he's been lucky. He tells us that one of the luckiest moments of his life was meeting his college roommates. Together, they built a study guide website called SparkNotes. Then, they built an online dating empire. They started the site OkCupid while Yegan was getting his MBA at Stanford. The idea came from one of those college roommates. It was really late. He was at a bar in the Lower East Side. And I was like, okay, well, he's probably going to forget about that. And uh, he called me the next day and said, what do you think? And I was like, are we really going to do this? This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. Yegan is now the CEO of ShopRunner, but he's best known for his seven-year tenure as the head of the Match Group, which includes OkCupid, Match.com, and Tinder. He tells me that it was his Syrian immigrant parents who developed his drive to be an entrepreneur. I often get asked how I got into entrepreneurship. People ask, did you have a paper route? Did you have a lemonade stand? Did you, you know, have a job early in your, in your life? And, and the answer to all those is no. And... The more I think about it, the more I think that immigration is the ultimate entrepreneurship in many ways. I mean, if you think about sort of what an entrepreneur is typically signing up for, they're typically sort of giving up something of certainty, right? You know, a job or income or a career or money for some like very speculative long-term outcome that they kind of think is going to be good, but kind of have no idea what that journey is going to look like. And that idea of like being super, super comfortable with uncertainty being super comfortable with the unknown, this idea that just never give up, you're just this relentlessness, um, were all attributes that I realized my parents had been teaching me or demonstrating not to be an entrepreneur, but just because that's how they lived. What were you like as a kid? Oh, I was a super nerd. <laughs> I mean, super, super nerd. Um, you know, my parents made a very conscious priority to Americanize me, you know, and I think that's one of the great things about our culture is I think for most immigrant families, this idea of becoming American is a really important part of that sort of transition to the first generation of, of American-born kids. I, I think I was a pretty normal kid in that, you know, I love the Chicago Cubs and I love to go outside and you know, play basketball. And Yeah, growing up in Illinois. Growing up, yeah, yeah. growing up in Illinois. And Michael Jordan was drafted when I was six. So, you know, it was <laughs> like I thought all teams had, you know, the best player ever. But I was like super math nerd. And, uh, you know, up until my high school years, you know, I was, I was sort of growing up as the smartest kid in the class. And that was that was sort of my that was my rap for better, or for worse. Did any of your family remain in Syria? Yeah. I mean, up, up until the war about six years ago, uh, virtually all of my family uh, remained in Syria. So with the war, they all just fled? Yeah. I mean, it's super sad, obviously. I think people basically made one of two decisions. They were either like, we're young enough where it's 
worth it to sort of restart our lives um, in a country where we probably don't know the language, where we probably aren't licensed to do our profession or whatever. And the people who were in my parents' generation who are like, you know what, I'm super old. And if this is my lot in life, this is my lot in life. You know, if you're 82, what are you going to do? Like go pick up and start over. I, I just think like people weren't up for that. So do you think that there's kind of a, a different mindset now is like with your parents when they're like, we just want to be Americans kind of let's forget and move on. Do you think that you see it differently from how they did? It's not so much let's forget. I think it's just like we came here to be American. And so, no, I, I mean, I think I have both the strong appreciation for my roots and, and their roots, but also I consider myself the luckiest person in the world. Like all my cousins were born in Syria. I was born here, like not dumb luck, but luck. So I'm, you know, I'm super grateful. And if you just think back, like there, there were two or three moments in my life where I got super lucky. And when I was younger, I used to think, oh, I'm just super good and whatever. And I think once you sort of get to the point in your life where you're like, yeah, I'm good, but boy, I got sure got lucky. And then I think it just puts a lot of things in context. When do you think you got to that point where you became aware of it? You know, I, I think it was probably, I don't know if it was because the war started, but I think seeing so many of my family members be displaced as part of the war. And I was like, the things they think about when they wake up in the morning and the things I think about when I wake up in the morning, like I've got champagne problems, you know, it's like when I was at match or, you know, now at shop runner, it's like, Oh, like how do we compete with Amazon prime on this? How do we build this product? And I'm like, that's a great problem to be thinking about because I'm not thinking about survival. So only fairly recently you kind of rethought your life. Yeah, I think so. And you're saying that as your parents kind of instilled in you this willingness to just take big risks, even if you weren't aware of it, at the time, when you were in college as an undergrad at Harvard, you started Sparknotes. Yeah. When did you decide you wanted to create something, create a business? I showed up at Harvard, and one of the three luckiest, I think, moments of my life was that I got placed in a dorm with these two guys, Max and Chris, who are literally the two smartest people I've ever met and two of my best friends. And it was actually Chris who first had the idea for creating a website. And the original website was called thespark.com. It was a humor site. And I remember Chris, he would show me, hey, I've been working on this thing on the side. And I would look at it and I'd be like, I don't really get this. So I went back to like recruiting for consulting firms. And then I'd see him again. He'd be like, the site's improving and progressing. And I'm like, I don't really get this. And (laughs) I went back to interviewing for consulting firms. And then finally in January, he was like, okay, like we should really do this. And I'm like, do what? Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, we should like start a company around this. And I remember thinking like, you know, normally that'd be like a big deal. You know, you'd be like, oh, I'm turning down these consulting offers and what does this mean for my career and money? And because we didn't have any money. And I was like, cool, let's do it. You know, and like that immediate sort of bias toward, yeah, let's let's try it um, was something that I didn't have to think very hard about. Again, because I think I had been raised with a certain sort of decision-making heuristic or framework where that seemed like a great opportunity to pursue. And uh, so that was it. So it was, in the, it was in the spring of my senior year when Chris Max and I decided we were going to you know, make a go out of this company called, at the time, The Spark. And then you know, weeks later, we launched Spark Notes. Were you creating the study guides yourself? No. Um, one, of the, one of the nice things about being in a school, a liberal arts school with a good English program is we had all these friends who had just gotten done paying, you know, 100 grand to a school to allow them to write papers. And so we went with this great offer. We'll pay you 400 bucks to write a paper. And their heads exploded. They were like, wait a minute, you're going to pay me to write a paper. This is amazing. And so 
I remember it was like we had spring break late in March that year, and we went to people right before their spring breaks and said, hey, can you spend your spring break writing this paper? And and so at the end of spring break, we had 10 Spark Notes, and we put them up on the site, and we got all this hate mail. And like people were pissed. And we're Why? Like, what? Because we didn't have the Spark Note they needed. Because oh, okay. we only we only had 10, and they wanted Romeo and Juliet, or they wanted Hamlet, or they wanted you know whatever book we didn't have. And it was like... Like really real anger because they were like, oh, we found this site with free study guides. And then they're like scrolling and they don't see what they want. But of course, that's the best kind of hate mail to get, right? If we need more product. <laughs> and so we spent that summer, uh, we hired a couple editors and um, their goal was to get 100 Spark Notes up by the fall. And the rest is kind of history. How'd you make a business out of it if you were offering it for free at first? Oh, but this, you, see, you have to put yourself back in time. Anytime we talk about the internet, you have to like time adjust. So this is 1999, right? And so pre-bubble. And at the time, eyeballs, right, were all that mattered and revenue models, you know, no one had even really come up with any other than advertising for the most part. That was the idea. And if you think about, you know, Sparknotes, you can argue business models eight ways from Sunday, but I think a Sparknote is like the perfect thing to be at supported because it's right once and published a zillion times, right? So like whatever we paid, we paid 400 bucks for a Sparknote in 1999, you probably have the same Sparknote up today. Maybe you update it once a decade or something, but the upfront cost is so low and the use is so high that you can make your notes profitable on an ad model. I think over time, uh, there's a huge opportunity to generate a lot more revenue based off the study guide, but that hasn't been a priority. So when you went to get your MBA at Stanford, were you going into this being like, when I get out of this, maybe I'll go into like a typical Wall Street career no. Or did you think you were going to be a founder? Oh, no. I, I knew I knew I was never going to go to a typical career. I, I think once you've had a modestly successful CEO experience, it's super hard to not have that again. So that was with Sparknotes? Yeah, that was with Sparknotes. We sold Sparknotes twice. The second time we sold it to Barnes & Noble. I stayed at Barnes & Noble for a year. And I remember at Barnes & Noble, because they have a publishing business, they have a retail business, the time especially was a really big successful company and i remember realizing how much i didn't know about business right like if you think about like a straightforward consumer internet business that doesn't spend money on marketing that you know really doesn't spend money on really on cost of goods although we you know we did pay for the notes to get made our pnl was so simple it was like ad revenue you know payroll that was it that was our pnl i didn't have to know anything about accounting i didn't have to know anything about marketing i didn't have to know anything about hr like we were a 18 person company and then you get there and you're like, you show up in an accounting meeting and like, you can't get through like the third minute before you're super confused. I didn't even know any of these terms. And so most people go to business school for the strategy classes. And I went to business school for the core. I was like, yeah, great. I'll do the strategy classes, but I want to understand how accounting works. And I want to understand how, you know, HR works. Like that was what I knew I needed. You had already built a business, but you found yourself in over your head, essentially. Yeah. I mean, if your first job as a CEO like normally you like train for this job and you become a domain expert or you manage people. There are whole like career development plans to prepare you to be ultimately a CEO. And, you know, I had none of that. And so I showed up, made a ton of mistakes, obviously, but more than that, I just never had the foundation on which to build my professional success. So you had eDonkey, mm-hmm. right? And that was kind of like a, a Napster for video, essentially? Yeah, I mean... so or after a BitTorrent after- client... Yeah, so after Napster had its you know legal uh, demise, a whole set of decentralized file sharing networks joined. So this is Kazaa, LimeWire, BearShare would have been sort of the peer companies at the time. 
and we were we were one of the decentralized uh, networks because our technology. My my partner Jed McCaleb, who's you know, one of the best technologists ever, uh, now super active in crypto, uh, he had this vision for the technology, and because it was so fast, naturally people used it for video because video files are so much bigger than audio files. So we became the de facto file sharing network for video because the technology was so perfect for that. What did your experience with eDonkey, what did that teach you as you're looking back on it? I learned a a bunch of things. I think one is um, the difference between market success and economic success. Like I still consider eDonkey a success. We reached, you know, millions and millions of people we ultimately ran into the regulatory and uh, legal headwinds. But I think I understand that a lot better now. I think I really value the importance of clarity in laws because people talk about chilling effects and ambiguity and you're going to stifle innovation. And I think some of that is real, you know, and I think like what I think entrepreneurs need is, and especially investors, but entrepreneurs is like, what are the rules of the road for this business? And we'll, we will play within the rules if it's clear what they are. I think the more ambiguity there is, there is this chilling effect of saying, well, I don't want to go invest a bunch of my life to build something that could ultimately just go down. So I think those two were probably two of my biggest learnings. Why did you get into the online dating business in 2004 with OkCupid? Because uh, Chris called me from a bar on a Friday night he called me and said, we should start a dating site. Chris is your friend from Harvard. Yeah, right? yeah. My, my co-founder from Sparknotes. Yeah. It was really late. He was at a bar in the Lower East Side. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, he's probably going to forget about that. And uh, he called me the next day and said, what do you think? And I was like, are we really going to do this? But, you know, I think if you think back to the dating industry, so really at the time it was, you know, Match, eHarmony, and Yahoo were the three big players. And the faces of online dating were Dr. Phil had a deal with Match and Dr. Neil Clark Warren, who is still on the eHarmony commercials. And the four founders of OkCupid were all math majors. And so we were thinking like, this can't be the future of online dating. Like it can't be like these psychologists who are going to like look into your soul and, and find a soulmate. So we just didn't believe the product premise. And Chris, who's a product visionary, really just sort of had this idea of a matching algorithm based on, you know, getting people to do Q&A that really became and to this day still is the gold standard for matching. Maybe you see it differently, but when I'm looking at these three businesses that you founded, it's hard for me to see like what was driving you, like why one to the next. What did you see? Like how do you approach entering a business? What are you passionate about? So I think in all of them they're about building great product thinking first about the customer and building products that customers are going to love, preferably using either a technology transformation or a business model transformation to empower them or to enable them. So if you think about SparkNotes, you know, the innovation there was the internet, which I know sounds trite now, but like, you know, Notes were these books and nobody had yet gone and said, we're going to use the internet to make a better consumer experience. Um, with eDonkey, it was it was the technology that Jed had built around getting much faster downloads. And so we were able to build a consumer experience that people loved better. And with OkCupid, it was really about using data, which, you know, big data wasn't even a term in 2004, I don't think, using data to drive compatibility assessment. Those are the common threads. And, and at ShopRunner, where, you know, I spend my time now, it's all about thinking how can we make a prime-like experience for the other retailers that aren't Amazon? How can we help you know, a Neiman Marcus or a Kate Spade or any of our retailers delight their customers despite not having you know, the scale that, that Amazon has? 
So then with OkCupid, 10 years in, online dating had become a, a massive business and then people started using smartphones as well. How, how did that change how you kind of saw what you wanted to accomplish here? The smartphone dynamic in dating and, you know, people will write, you know, business school case studies about this eventually. It had a couple interesting effects. I think the first is for the first time you could use location beyond the zip code. Number two, the way dating used to work was it was something people would do when they got home in, at night. So, in fact, we, we had seen our logs like 7 p.m. Like that's when everybody checked OkCupid, right? It's because you didn't do it at work because you're on your computer. Now it's something that you're checking throughout the day. And it's something where as you move around the town or as you move around your day, sort of who you're matching with can change. And then the third and most important is because it wasn't something you were doing at home in your basement, it became something you could do with your friends. We incubated Tinder while I was the CEO of Match. And I think Tinder was successful for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of them was you could just sit there at a bar or at your friend's house and just start swiping. And it became truly social, uh, not in the sort of social network way, but truly in terms of, hey, check this out, you know, or hey, let me swipe for you. And that was something that you just couldn't do if you were doing it, you know, in your basement at seven o'clock at night. And so with the mainstream success of this, millions of people starting to use online dating, it's not like a weird thing anymore. It also made it easier also for, I guess, the way to see it is like creepy guys harassing women. Like in 2014, this Redditor had like a viral post of pretending to be a woman on OkCupid. And he felt like he was immediately assaulted by all of these strange guys. How did you see that as the head of this company? So, you know, obviously the quality of the community is maybe the most important thing. Um, And, you know, whenever somebody asks me a question about online dating, the first thing I think about is offline dating. So think about like your favorite bar, right? The majority of experiences you have at a bar where it's like, you know, a nice bar, like are positive, you know, every once in a while, is there a fight at the bar or, you know, some creepy guy hit on you? Yes, that happens. But it's up to like, how does the community or the owners or the bartender like police that? And so, you know, you're always going to have the corner case, you're always going to have the one thing where someone had a terrible experience. But at OkCupid, we, we spend a lot of time on the algorithms to manage the amount of volume. The nice thing that we have that a bar doesn't have is that we have the ability to say, okay, well, you know, let's penalize somebody who sends messages that don't get responded to, or let's make sure that if somebody's already gotten three messages, she's not going to get 10 more tonight. So I think we can actually use technology to balance that in a way that you can't offline. It's an impossible hypothetical, but do you think that maybe you would have done things differently if there was like a woman co-founder? That's an interesting question. I haven't asked that before. Uh, I I think anytime you change the mix of leadership, you're going to get a, a different set of opinions. I think, you know, A, we always thought about it. I think most dating products are created from the woman's point of view because that is the most most valuable part of the network is to make sure that, that the women are there. I'm sure we would have made different decisions, but not necessarily because it was a woman, just because it was, would be a different set of people. But we spent a lot of time looking at the data and we spent a lot of time talking to single people sure. of both genders. And then when you became um, the CEO of the Match Group, which is the collection of dating sites, didn't you marry your high school sweetheart? I did. Yeah. There was a slow news day back in 2007 <laughs> where there was a headline on some website that's like, king of online dating has never been on an online date. But yes, I have never been on an online date. Well, do you think that maybe there, are there any advantages? I've also never used a SparkNote. You haven't? No. Well, do you think that there are advantages then if you see it differently? 
you know, I, I think there's a mix. I think, you know, you, you have just as many people who say, well, I started a company to solve a problem that I had. And then I think you can also take the view that, you know, if you bring fresh eyes on an industry, you can often come up with, you know, new paradigms or new products. So you could say that, that yeah, they brought a fresh, a fresh perspective. Why did you decide to go to ShopRunner as CEO in 2016? I had been in the online dating business for 13 years. I had co-founded OkCupid. I had been the CEO of Match, and I was part of the team that incubated Tinder. And I would argue that those were the three most important dating businesses ever. We're in the third decade of online dating, and decade one was Match was the best company. And I would argue in decade two, OkCupid was the best company. And in decade three, it's Tinder. And I look at that, and you know, I think at some point, you're like, Am I going to do this forever? And I kind of like had given the industry everything I had. And another big part of it was that I lived in Chicago and um, Match is based in Dallas and OkCupid's in New York and Tinder's in LA. And so a big part of it was just like, it was the right time for me to sort of think about what is the next chapter in my life. And I was really interested, you know, sort of to the question you asked earlier about, you know, what is that theme that connects everything? I like the idea of the David and Goliath sort of the entrenched incumbent. But I really wanted to be able to use data to make delightful customer experiences. So the incumbent here would be Amazon, Amazon Prime. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think of us as competing with, with Amazon so much. I think they're a, you know, obviously an amazing company. But I do think about like this idea of Prime, which is maybe one of the best products ever made. What does Prime look like in a multi-retailer environment? That's interesting to me. And how can we use the data that we see across our retailers to maybe even make a product that has advantages over Prime. And look, our view is that we are super compatible with Prime. The vast majority of our members have a Prime subscription. In my ideal world, everyone in America has Prime and everybody in America has ShopRunner and everybody gets a great experience when they shop anywhere. Earlier, you had mentioned that there were three moments in your life that you considered to be like the turning points, the luckiest things. We had talked about the first one. What were the other two? So the first one was being born in America. The second one was... um, I grew up in a town called Bourbonnais, Illinois, which is about an hour south of Chicago in a cornfield or across the street from a cornfield. Um, And I went to a really great public school as far as I was concerned, but it's probably now with context. It was an average public school in an average cornfield. And again, like I said earlier, I was the smartest kid in the class. And fortunately, the state of Illinois in the 80s created this thing called the Illinois Math and Science Academy in another cornfield about 90 minutes away. It was a state magnet school, a public school for students talented in math and science. And they found me. They sent me a letter. They asked me to apply. I applied, and I got in. And I think going to IMSA was that second sort of super lucky thing that you couldn't have planned for. And really what I got out of it, world-class education. But more than that, I learned when I was 14 that I was not the smartest kid in the class. And I think the earlier in life you realize you're not the smartest kid in the class, the better. Because there's only one smartest kid. Somewhere, somewhere in the world is the smartest person in the world. The rest of us aren't. And I think the earlier in life you realize that, A, it's a huge burden, right? Because now I don't have to be valedictorian. Like, I'm just not going to be, and that's okay. Um, And then number two is you start realizing, okay, well, what am I going to be great at? I ended up spending the vast majority of my time in college teaching because I thought communicating, explaining, and leading could be my superpower rather than, you know, being the best at differential equations in programming and whatever else I was doing in my applied math degree. So that was number two, was going to the Math Science Academy. And then third was the freshman dean's office at Harvard put me with Max and Chris. And I think 
that relationship to this day, that's what got me into being an entrepreneur. And I learned so much from them. And, um, and that partnership was just a huge part of my professional success. And how do you personally define success? That's so hard. You know, I I think if I had to summarize it in a word, I would say like mattering. Like I want to matter. And and that has a lot of lenses. But like when I die, I, I want like whether it's individuals or whether it's my family or whether it's consumers, I want people to say like people's lives were better because I was on this earth. And so it could be people who work at ShopRunner. Like I want to build this great culture where people develop and people get to be themselves and get to be happy. And I want, and I want to help these retailers succeed and grow. I was at a dinner last night and somebody said they, they, uh, she met her husband on OkCupid and like, give me a hug and took a selfie. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like she was so happy. Right. I always talk about permanence in the companies I build. Like the fact that SparkNote still exists today, 19 years after we built them, that I have so much pride in that. Okay, Cupid is still something that millions of people use every day. I have so much pride in that. And my kids are just now getting old enough to, you know, start using SparkNotes and then ultimately probably Okay, Cupid or whatever. And like the fact that I've had that impact and I can actually see that happen, I think that's success. It's like, did you matter to, first of all, most importantly, the people near you, your friends, your family? but then your employees and your coworkers, and then people at large. At what point did you realize this part of yourself? That's a good question. I think because I was fortunate to have some amount of success early in life, I kind of realized like it wasn't about chasing personal accomplishment. I think early in life, you're just in an environment where like it's your personal accomplishment that is success. And I think maybe once I got to a certain amount of success, I was like, okay, well, I don't have to go get more success. Am I going to spend the next 50 years of my life just trying to keep like running bigger businesses and making more money? And that didn't seem fulfilling. And so then I said, well, what do I really, what do I really value about what I'm building? And it's the impact that I'm having on other people. And so I've used the word matter as kind of like that all encompassing term. In, in an interview, I, I saw that Uh-oh. you said, <laughs> no, it's a good one. In, uh, in most jobs, your early 30s to early 40s are your power years. So you're 41 now, right? Yeah. So are, are you in your, your power years now? <laughs> um, you know, I think that the way I see it is I've checked all the boxes that I wanted. Like, I have no more boxes to check. So, so I think I look at it not so much the power years, but I think now I can be really intentional about everything I do. Like, I didn't have to take the shop owner job, right? That wasn't, uh, I need a job, you know, ASAP. And I looked at a lot of opportunities and I thought about starting my own new companies. I thought about taking big public company jobs, but I was like, how can I build something that that really matters? And so I don't think it's so much about, you know, the power years as it is the intentional years. So this, this is when you're really focusing and you're very cognizant of mattering, as you put it? Yeah. So like, I remember when, when they offered me the CEO job at Match, which a job I was super not qualified for, right? Like I was running tiny little OkCupid, 30 people. And the next day I'm running a billion dollar business with 1200 people. Right. And I was super unqualified, but I remember thinking I have to take the job. It is transformative for my career to go from being startup guy, startup guy, startup guy to being big company guy. And I was going to learn so much. 
that is like to me more of a power move like that is like okay if you think about your job on a trajectory like or your career on a trajectory like oh this is a huge step and i've got to take that right this is the big promotion like a hierarchy thing. yeah yeah and, and it was like a box to check that okay now i'm running this big company so i do think like like i said the 30s are and it happened that you know that's when it happened for me but like i'm not on that sort of like box checking power years kind of part of my career what would you say to someone who wants to have a career like yours? Huh. Uh, really? No. Um, <laughs> I think it depends which part of it. The, the question I get asked the most is, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. What should I do? But I think if I don't answer that question and take a step back and say, like, the career like mine, I have always tried to put myself in situations where I'm surrounded by people smarter than me. And that was true for as early as high school when I went to the Math and Science Academy. It was true... You know, uh, Max and Chris and Christian, our fourth co-founder at OKCupid, always smarter than me. And I think that is not an obvious thing to do. I think a lot of times people don't feel comfortable with that. But I have found that when I have done that, A, I've challenged myself to be my best and, you know, and, and to keep up. So that's number one. And then number two is be willing to fail. You know, I talk about luck and failure all the time. Like that is, I think, the story of my career. But the thing about luck is, you can't just sit around waiting to get lucky because that doesn't work. You've got to show up for the game. You've got to put yourself in positions to get lucky. Then you've got to get lucky. Then you've got to execute like hell and you've got to actually deliver. And so I've gotten super lucky and I've failed a bunch of times, but all those things have sort of snowballed into a situation where I've now got this set of experiences, successes and failures, and a network of a whole bunch of people smarter than me that have really positioned me to be able to do a lot of things. So be ready for luck, show up, put yourself out there, deliver, execute like hell. And then number two, put yourself around people smarter than you all the time. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. If you haven't yet, please don't forget to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. If you really like us, give us five stars. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back next week with another interview of success.